When we consider what it means to be a citizen, most Americans would probably say that involves individual rights. In this episode, we hear a call for changing the meaning of citizenship. Our guest, Richard Haas, the former president of the Council on Foreign Relations, says if democracy is to survive, we must think more about our obligations to one another. Individual rights have been raised up to a level of absolutes. And any infringement of those is rejected by a, a, a significant uh, percentage of our society. And my view is simply, we can't have a society that will function only on rights. But if these rights are seen in absolute terms, we have to be prepared to compromise. We need mechanisms for dealing with the friction. This is Let's Find Common Ground. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. And I'm Richard Davies. Our guest on this episode says the greatest threat to America comes not from foreign adversaries, but from ourselves. Richard Haas argues that finding common ground and healing bitter divisions require placing obligations on the same footing as rights. Haas is an experienced diplomat and policymaker. He spent 20 years at the Council on Foreign Relations and served in the Pentagon, State Department, and the White House under four presidents, Democrat and Republican alike. His new book is called The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. I was away when this interview was recorded, so Richard, you ask the questions. Richard Haas, welcome to Let's Find Common Ground. Thanks so much for having me. America faces dangerous threats from overseas, from Russia, from China, from North Korea, for example. Many would argue that global climate change is also a severe threat. But you say that the number one threat is from within our nation and that the most urgent priority right now is to uphold our democracy. Why? Well, for two reasons. All those threats and others you mentioned are all too real. But if one looks, say, at the last 75 years, we have faced any number of serious uh, threats, and we've, uh, we've done quite okay, thank you very much, including managing a Cold War, uh, ending it on terms that uh, even optimists didn't imagine, and we kept it cold. The first reason that what happens here domestically matters so much is it's, it's central, it's critical to our ability to cope with the traditional list of, uh, of national security challenges that you mentioned. Secondly, everything we do as a society, everything we do as an economy, everything we do as a political system assumes, is predicated on, on the idea that we function. Just say that ceases to be true. I spent several years, three years as the American envoy to the Northern Ireland peace talks. I then went back for another six months uh, for a separate round of uh, peace talks. Well, Northern Ireland is a modern society in the middle of Europe, uh, in the UK. Uh, and over the course of three decades during the so-called troubles, suddenly doing the most mundane things became heroic. Uh, it's interesting how much depends upon basically order and uh, a political process that people accept the legitimacy of and the ability to go about one's business and not fear physical threats. Well, just say that was no longer true in the United States. And what I think we've had a glimpse of is that we shouldn't assume it will always be true. I take our, our political polarization 
and the glimmers of violence that we've had, I take them seriously. Many people would say that, that January 6th is the worst example of polarization, but that tends to blame one side. When we speak of polarization, is this a problem primarily of populist Republicans, of Trump lovers, or is it much broader than that? Does it include many other forms of, of dysfunction and intolerance? It's a really thoughtful question. We've, we've entered an era of winner-take-all politics, uh, where you know, in the political space, in private lives, people are just less inclined to compromise. Uh, civility has broken down. Violence is often introduced. We see it at school meetings and, and, and so forth uh, at Little League. So I think it's, uh, it's too narrow to simply pin it on the Republican Party. But that said, and I say this, by the way, as someone who was a Republican for over 40 years, this Republican Party is different. Uh, and American democracy, while we've had to contend with third parties and outliers who represented a kind of populist dimension, I would say this is something different, where one of the two major political parties has essentially been taken over by a, a populist, uh, not just an individual, but a movement. That is a threat to American democracy that the founders and their successors didn't just simply didn't imagine. Do you think the threat to democracy today is so much worse than it has been in previous eras of American history? Short answer is yes. Uh, it's a threat both to the functioning of our democracy, our ability to compromise, to get things done. And then, yes, I think this degree of polarization leading to uh, violence is something qualitatively different. So, yeah, in many ways, I'd say we probably have to go back, and it's not a happy verdict, to the era in the mid-19th century surrounding the Civil War when you had a, a, a degree of intensity and absolutism to our political disagreements. We don't have a single issue like slavery that is so defining, but we do have a, an absolutism and an intolerance that has entered into our politics that uh, anyone who's who's looking closely should be worried by. Carl Rove wrote a very interesting article recently in the Wall Street Journal. It's called uh, America is often a nation divided. U.S. politics today is ugly and broken. True enough, he writes. But the good news is it was worst in the past. Part of his case is that uh, during the 1960s and 70s, we had riots, we had assassinations, and we had 2,500 domestic bombings in just 18 months in 1971 and 72. That's almost unthinkable today. So are you being too negative? I read Carl's piece. Uh, I would respectfully disagree. I think he's too, he's too sanguine. Uh, yes, we've had differences in the past, and I grew up in the uh, in the 60s. But a lot of those things were, were not threats to American democracy. They were motivated by disagreements about the Vietnam War or other issues. Uh, even the assassinations, as awful as they were, in, uh, of presidents and presidential candidates and civil rights leaders, were not revolutionary acts. What's so different about what we face now is we, we have seen elements of a revolutionary situation where people don't want to promote simply policy outcomes but they want to change the process. They want to change the structures, the, the, the operations of American democracy. That is fundamentally different than anything we've seen 
in the past. So I do think this is both different and more worrisome. So I, I'm not a member of the sanguine school. I'm not a member of, ah, oh, we've seen worse. We've seen it all before. Uh, we've gotten through it then. We'll get it through it now. Hopefully that's right. I'd love to be proven wrong here. My own sense is, is it won't sort itself out by itself. And we need all sorts of uh, citizens in this society to get more involved. Talk about the media and its influence and why and how the media has changed in recent years. Well, look, I'm looking at you. You're looking at me as we do this podcast. We are of, shall we say, uh, our generations are in the same zip code. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so we grew up in an era of mass media. And we grew up in an era of broadcasting. And there were three major uh, networks. They were truly national. You had a couple of nightly news programs. And the next day, a lot of people back in the old days when we went into offices, we had the common experience. Well, none of that is true today. We live in an era not of broadcasting, but of narrow casting. Social media is a relatively recent phenomenon. So people are able to find communities in which they feel comfortable, where they often have their own views reinforced. There's no vetting. There's no fact checking. It's not news in many cases. It's just pure opinion or, or it's, it's propaganda, whatever you want to uh, describe it. There's, there's no quality control. So yeah, I think the media landscape is one of the, one of the drivers of, of where we find ourselves politically and socially. Many of the fierce debates we've been having, uh, some of them about the Constitution, are framed as being arguments about rights. You argue in your book that we have responsibilities as citizens or obligations. Why do they matter so much and why should they be part of the conversation we're having over rights? Look, rights are central to the American experience. When we think about American democracy, we think of words like rights, like freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom from religion, long list, and, and the Bill of Rights. So rights are central, and indeed, another way to think of American history over the period since is the greater uh, access to rights civil rights, the fact that people, you know, gay people can get married under the, the law. So many things have changed in our society. My point is simply that rights are necessary, they're central, they're everything except sufficient. Sooner or later, rights come into conflict, a, a mother's right to choose the rights of the unborn. Well, how do you, how do you deal with that if, if rights are seen as uh, absolute or someone's right to under the Second Amendment to bear arms. Well, how about the right of public safety? Can there be any conditioning or limiting of those rights, either who has access to guns or what kinds of uh, guns? We had a fierce debate, as you recall, over the last couple of years about vaccines and, and masks, about rights not to uh, get vaccinated or wear a uh, mask. And how did that conflict with the right, again, to public health and public safety. So it turns out democracies can't be based on a foundation of rights alone. We've lost the balance. JFK talked about, ask not 
what your country can do for you, what you can do for your country. I don't, I don't hear a lot of that anymore. It's interesting that you mentioned the recent debate over mask wearing and vaccinations during the COVID pandemic, because in that debate, at least, there was talk about obligations, about you were obligated as a citizen to help protect the health of others. Well, we've lost that somewhere along the way. Mm. Individual rights have been raised up to a level of absolutes. And any infringement of those is rejected by a a significant percentage of our society. And my view is simply we can't have a society that will function only on rights. But if these rights are seen in absolute terms, we have to be prepared to compromise. We need mechanisms for dealing with the friction between different interpretations of, our, of rights. So that was essentially the, uh, the genesis of, uh, of this book. Richard Haas speaking on Let's Find Common Ground. I'm Ashley. I'm Richard. One way to stay informed as a citizen is to learn more about our elected representatives, members of Congress, senators and governors. The Common Ground scorecard shows how much candidates campaigning for public office demonstrate a willingness to pursue common ground. The scorecard helps voters understand how much or how little candidates work across the political aisle. And now there's a new scorecard. It features candidates who are running for president. Find out more at commongroundscorecard.org. People in Washington are talking about it. You can go to Common Ground Scorecard. Now, back to Richard's interview with Richard Haas. What is the difference between our obligations and requirements? Yeah, I've tried to parse three words, which is uh, obligations, responsibilities, and requirements. <laughs> it gets pretty, uh, pretty parsed. <laughs> I feel like one of those you know, religious scholars pouring over the uh, the text. But uh, we'll start with requirements. Requirements are just that. Those, those are the things you have to do. Right. You have to pay taxes. When there's a draft, you have to report. You have to stop at red lights. These are things you have to do. And if you don't, you pay uh, a price for it. Could be a fine, could be uh, imprisonment, whatever. But the, there's no gray area there. Responsibilities and obligations are different. Those are things you should do or ought to do. Responsibilities, I see, is a little bit more personal. We try to encourage people to assume certain responsibilities because we think they're good. Obligations are more than that. They're good things and they're normative, but also they're things we owe one another. We do them not just for ourselves, but we do them because we have uh, connections to other peoples in this society. We do have to, to some extent, be our brothers or sisters keeper in order to make the larger society work. But also it's in our own self-interest. In your book, you list 10 obligations that we have as citizens. Let's walk through at least some of them. Two that that seem fairly obvious, but perhaps aren't to many people, is be involved and stay informed. Yeah, those are the first two. Jefferson you know, basically said uh, being an informed citizen is the single most important thing for, uh, for democracy. It's the only way to hold elected and appointed officials to account. It's the only way to know when you do 
walk into a voting booth, how to vote, because you've been informed. But then you've got to walk into the voting booth. It's the most fundamental form of involvement. It turns out a significant chunk of Americans are not informed. For whatever reason, they don't bother. They, or they go to this or that social media site, which misinforms rather than informs. And look at the numbers of Americans who are not involved in our political lives. The recent midterm elections were critical by any measure. We're talking about, what, 10 months ago, more than half of eligible voters didn't vote. The next three obligations are stay open to compromise, remain civil, and reject violence. Pretty basic. Pretty basic. I always feel slightly, what's the word, guilty for having to include them because you would have thought they were pretty self-evident. Alas, not. Uh, compromise has somehow become a, a dirty word in our uh, society. Somehow, if you compromise, you're selling, you're unprincipled. Well, no, that, but not everything is a sword you die on. You have to be willing to compromise a degree often in order to get things done. There may also be some legitimacy to the other point of uh, view. Civility doesn't, it just makes conversations possible. And just because you disagree, you and I might disagree on an issue today. One of the good things about civility is it keeps open the possibility we could agree and work together on another issue tomorrow. You avoid destroying relationships that, that may come in handy. The case for nonviolence is obvious. First of all, nonviolence has been proven to be a pretty successful tactic. If you look at the civil rights movement, you look at what Gandhi accomplished, say, uh, in, in, in India. But also, again, if uh, violence becomes a, a staple of our politics, that's the end of politics as we as we know it. The next obligation is value norms. And I was interested in that. I'm not sure or I wasn't sure before I read your book uh, what it what it means. What's the difference between a law and a norm? Norms are things that ought to be done, as opposed to laws or things that have to be done. We'll use Donald Trump as an example here. The fact that he did not participate in the uh, transfer of power in the Biden inauguration, that was the violation of a norm. There's nothing about that norm that he had to do. There's nothing in it in the Constitution. There's no legal penalty that he you know could find or imprisoned for not doing it but again it's the kind of thing you should do because it, it signals that democracy is bigger than me it signals that for all of our political differences we both put democracy first what a great message to the world that that communicates the you know reagan's idea that we're a shining city on a hill well we never shine better than when we have a peaceful transfer of power between individuals who are political opponents. The next obligation is is dear to our hearts at Common Ground Committee and this podcast, Let's Find Common Ground, which is promote the public good, which I'm sure includes promoting some sense of common ground. Absolutely. It goes beyond things that you have to do. That would be, there might be legal requirements, but I'm saying short of those things, we have uh, obligations to our to our fellow citizens, whether they're neighbors, co-workers, what have you. Obligation number eight in your list of 10 is, 
obvious maybe to some people, but I, it's, I think it's taken on greater importance in recent years, and that is respect government service. Not necessarily respect the actions of government, but respect people who are working for the government, and in most cases, working for the public good. 100%. Uh, I hate the phrase deep state. It implies that government has been is, is hostile. No, there's people like your neighbor, your sister, your brother, your husband, your wife, what have you. It, tens of millions of Americans work in the public space at the federal level, the state level, the county level, the city level, what have you. And we want the best and the brightest to go into government because government has such an impact on our lives. So we should value government service. We don't pay people a hell of a lot to work in government, so we ought to give them respect. We ought to give them our, our thanks. We have the all-volunteer force in the military. We want the best and the brightest to go into that. We have a career uh, foreign service, a career intelligence service, and so forth. We want talented people. So my, my point about government is not that it's always right. Of course it isn't. But I do want the best people to go in, which it increases the odds that it will be right. And government does stuff that benefits all of us, virtually every aspect of our life for better and for worse, is influenced by government. I want to make it for better. The ninth obligation could really be the subject of an entire podcast, and I hope it will be with you uh, at a future time, and that is support teaching of civics. It is my favorite obligation. It is the one that I spend the most time talking about, so I'm happy to come back and devote a podcast to it. But yeah, I hate the idea that young people can go to a a two or four year college or university. And if they navigate those course requirements in a clever fashion, they'll never be exposed to civics. Or that many high schools and middle schools don't teach civics, so what they call civics is really not. I just think our schools ought to prepare people for citizenry. And this is a country that was based on ideas, on certain values, and we're not transmitting them. So we have got to make a collective commitment. Look, on, on many things, I'm not naive. We've politicized education, so it won't be easy. But I believe this needs to be prior a priority. Here we are, we're three years away from the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. I would hope that uh, over the next three years, we will see significant progress towards uh, putting civics back in, back in schools, back in colleges, back in universities, making building some consensus about what everybody ought to be uh, ex exposed to. The idea is not to politically indoctrinate. But the idea is to give people an understanding of, an appreciation of democracy. The 10th obligation, I have to admit, is a reach for many, many people. Perhaps not if you're in the military, but it's a reach for a lot of us, and that is put country first. You're right, but isn't that a sad statement that it's a reach? It's one of those things that if you take a step back and say, this is so basic, you sure you need to use up one of your obligations on this? Isn't it uh, obvious? And the answer is sure, it's obvious, but it doesn't mean it's always respected. It's sad that I have to advocate for it. It's sad that we can probably, the two of us could mention some cases of uh, where it's true. The fact that it stands out, that it's an exception is, is slightly said. Kennedy wrote, John Kennedy wrote the book Profiles and Courage, and he wrote about, I think it was eight senators who either compromised when compromise was unfashionable or held firm against compromise when it was the right thing to do. Uh, 
you know, be hard to fill probably another volume right now. And that, that's not a good thing. We, uh, we should encourage people to, uh, and as, to do the right thing. And as voters, we ought to reward it. Richard Haas, thank you for joining us on Let's Find Common Ground. Well, I'm glad to see we uh, found some common ground. Thank you for having me. Richard Haas talking about his new book, The Bill of Obligations. You know, you can certainly argue, Ashley, about who's to blame for polarization and the threats to our democracy. But what was most interesting to me really came in the second half of the interview, which were his solutions and how we can think anew about what it means to be a a good or at least an adequate citizen. Right. And in the coming months, we hope to speak with Richard Haas again about civics education, something he's obviously really passionate about. Yeah, he argues that education should be playing a big role in helping us become more committed citizens. It won't be easy. Uh, Some local communities are just as divided about what should be taught in the schools as Congress is about government spending. So we would argue that's a reason why all of us need to be better at finding common ground. Thanks for listening to our podcast. I'm Ashley. I'm Richard on Let's Find Common Ground. Our podcast team includes Common Ground Committee co-founders Bruce Bond and Eric Olson. And Mary Anglade, Brittany Chapman, Donna Vislaki, and Hannah Weston. And our editor and sound designer, Miranda Schaefer. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.